0: Welcome to today's podcast. I'm John Burke, Managing Editor of New Project Media. Alongside my colleague, Julian Ward, we're privileged to have Alan Marks, uh, partner with MoBank's Global Project Energy and Infrastructure Finance Group, join us today. Welcome to the program, Alan.
1: Hi, thanks very much for having me.
0: We are here to discuss the next steps uh, after the Department of Energy announced on October 13th uh, it's awarding of, uh, up to $7 billion in funding uh, to seven hydrogen hubs stemming from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, which passed in 2021. So uh, just to start us off, if you can explain, uh, you know, in terms of the funds awarded, uh, the potential of it, the process by which applicants can access that funding, and what the timetable will look like.
1: Sure, John happy to I mean this is it's a major announcement this is uh, uh seven billion of the eight billion or so that is allocated in the bipartisan infrastructure law uh for regional clean hydrogen hubs and that's a lot of money and it, it's it's intended to stimulate another 40 billion dollars in private investment uh into all parts of the value chain uh, for hydrogen to kind of create if you will a hydrogen economy uh we can talk if you like about whether that uh, make sense as a policy matter, what some of the economic and environmental goals or, or, uh, or issues might be. Uh, but it's certainly significant. Uh, at this point, the seven awarded or winning uh, regional hubs will enter into bilateral discussions with the Department of Energy to try to implement uh, a work plan and come up with an order for expenditure of the funds, uh, a, a very little of that money I think you'll see spent uh, in, in the near term, uh, and some hubs will go faster than others. Uh, what the Department of Energy has done is through a very careful process of initially attracting concept proposals and, and papers uh, from uh, over 100 interested applicants. They whittled it down, uh, and in this final uh, a round have now named a seven that will be dividing up to seven up to seven billion dollars. Some will get less than that. It'll depend uh, both in scope and timing on how their discussions go and how successful these hubs are in following through on the plans that they've proposed.
0: Of the twenty six hubs that lost out on the funding opportunity uh, and were previously shortlisted, what stood out in terms of what they lost versus the hubs that won?
1: So first, I would say it, it is interesting if you look at some of the public statements that have been made um, from some of the the hubs, which were not awarded uh, part of this initial seven billion dollars. Uh, many of them are still continuing to go forward just in a more limited way without the DOE funding. Uh, the whole process was designed to encourage collaboration and coordination on a regional basis uh, between companies that can provide uh some elements of the hydrogen supply chain between potential end users of hydrogen uh, and between academic research centers and state and local governments that were all supporting this. So that kind of collaboration for many of them that went into their proposals will continue. We've seen statements to that effect from uh, some of the proposals that did not win in, for example, Nevada and Arizona. Uh, One of the Appalachian ones, uh, a second proposal in Texas, which was was not awarded. and and I and I think that's important to note for the projects that were rather the the, the hubs that were successful uh, in being awarded a portion of the seven billion dollars in these initial uh, 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 DOE grants. One thing that stands out to me is all of them appear to have been coordinated highly coordinated among a wide range of of different participants. And some of those were very established big players, whether that's uh, energy companies or major research universities and labs, uh, end users, uh, including people who have data centers and so forth who can perhaps use the hydrogen in innovative ways. Uh, The Midwest Hub uh, will use some of the hydrogen that could be produced, uh, not just from renewables or natural gas, but also from nuclear power in ways that could benefit agriculture uh, and fertilizer production. The California proposal, uh, very comprehensive and a very long list of of participants, uh, will receive up to $1.2 billion. That's to use entirely renewable energy sources to make green hydrogen. Uh, And they had very close cooperation in that proposal from potential end users, including uh, the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Uh, trucking companies, marine companies, and so forth. So you see this wide, I think, commonality among all of the proposals where you have participants coming in from all the way from the very beginning, where it's your feedstock, to the very end. Uh, I think it's important to note too that the DOE was trying to get a lot of diversity, uh, both as far as end users, feedstock, and regional or geographic diversity. And so that was certainly, I think, a key part of this. So you don't see all the hubs clustered just in one place. We have winners in The upper Midwest, the Heartland proposal from Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota will receive $925 million. Uh, There's another Midwestern proposal in Illinois, Indiana, uh, and Michigan, uh, which will receive uh, up to a billion dollars. There are proposals on the West Coast, which, as I said, rely mainly, actually entirely on renewable energy and electrolysis to produce green hydrogen. Uh, That's in the Pacific Northwest, a joint proposal from Washington, uh, Oregon, and Montana. Uh, the California proposal I mentioned, there's also a winning proposal in Texas, which will use natural gas in addition to renewable energy uh, as a feedstock. Uh, the Texas proposal is sized at up to $1.2 billion, the same number also up to $1.2 billion for California. Uh, the Pacific Northwest up to a billion dollars. Um, and then we have two proposals, which one, which will use gas as well as uh, other sources um, in Pennsylvania. Uh, One of them in Western Pennsylvania, it's focused in the Appalachian region, which will include also West Virginia and Ohio, uh, up to $925 million. And then the Mid-Atlantic Hub in Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey, which will receive up to $750 million. And that's the location, in fact, where uh, President Biden made the official announcement uh, last week about, about, about the awards.
0: And so, what will happen uh, to those other hubs in terms of building uh, their respective projects? Will we see them continue forward?
1: Some yes, some no. Uh, you know, there's there's over twenty uh, applicants which which did not make the final list, and and you know, some of them will will retain remain perhaps coordinated as a, kind of a quasi hub if they like. Um, others, you know, may have participants that'll go their separate ways depending on you know the level of development and, and interest.
0: Alan, the um, release was clear that, you know, while the majority of the hubs were focused on green hydrogen, uh, that, um, you know, other forms of hydrogen were included in there as well, such as blue hydrogen. Um, You know, with all this focus, um, particularly around the IRA and, um, you know, how to structure, you know, properly this uh, tax credits, on the table why did you think the uh, doe just opted to choose a, a variety of hydrogen uh versus just green only
1: uh i th- the major reason is actually a legal one it's uh, required by the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law There were requirements uh, that at least a certain number of hubs include, in addition to renewable energy, which is what you call green hydrogen, that's where you take wind or solar power to generate electricity, you combine that with water in uh, an electrolyzer, and that electrolysis uh, uh, process with zero carbon or greenhouse gas emissions then produces uh, so-called green hydrogen. Uh, The law did require that a, uh, a certain number of the hubs also rely on natural gas, Uh, which several of the winning award proposals do, uh, that's so-called blue hydrogen. Uh, Traditionally, if you look at how hydrogen is produced in the United States, uh, 99% of it today is produced by using natural gas. And most of that is by running it through a a steam methane reformer. Uh, That process is extraordinarily intensive in greenhouse gas emissions, uh, mainly CO2, uh, but also there's in the associated value chain uh, significant leakage or emissions of methane uh, and also NOx. So if that can be decarbonized and still take advantage of inexpensive natural gas, the theory goes, um, then you can you can have uh, you know improvements and reductions in, in greenhouse gas emissions. So the way to do that is to take the natural gas, run it through an SMR, uh, steam methane performer, and then capture the CO2 emissions on the back end and sequester them. So this is a place where the infrastructure law, and I would also say, you know, even more significantly, you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, but the tax credits that are available not just for uh, blue hydrogen, uh, which is you know the natural gas-based hydrogen production uh, using carbon capture and storage, but also for carbon capture and storage itself, because that is um, uh, an infrastructure investment and, techno- and a technology which is uh, challenging at scale, to say the least, which is somewhat novel. Um, and very expensive, so the tax credits in the IRA for not just hydrogen but also for CCS uh, investments. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act not only, by way, increased the tax credits available for carbon capture and storage, but also reduced the, the thresholds that applicants would need in order to take advantage of those tax credits. So there's certainly a theme between these two laws that is, is is apparent in the awards for the regional uh, clean hydrogen hubs, um, and you know environmentalists. May point out that perhaps one of the reasons so many uh, oil and gas companies uh, uh, and utilities that are based on gas have been participants in some of these hub proposals, not just because the law requires there to be a blue hydrogen, uh, uh, you know, share of, of the funding, uh, but also because it's a way to preserve uh, a market for our natural gas if that's needed for for hydrogen production. Um, that is that is certainly a very uh, controversial point politically and in the environmental community. Um, nonetheless, right now, about two thirds of the funding, uh, the, that is promised to the award recipients for the regional hydrogen hubs is going to go to green hydrogen with the remainder available for, for blue or so-called pink hydrogen, which is uh, also required by the law for at least one of the hubs. Uh, that's where the electrolysis with zero carbon emissions, uh, uses nuclear power as opposed to wind or solar or other renewable power, uh, in order to create the hydrogen.
0: Um, want well, to just shift gears real quickly to the funding itself um trying to get a sense about how it would impact the cost of any given project that comes out of these hubs
1: yeah so the hubs include projects that uh, may make hydrogen it also importantly includes uh and required uh, uh analysis in, in in scoring the proposals for end use cases you know finding ways to use hydrogen that uh, will then either have less emissions in the production of the hydrogen or decarbonize other hard to abate sectors, uh, transportation, industrial heat, uh, fertilizer production, for example. Um, and so the proposals can be used to fund uh, any projects along that, that route. And most importantly, I think the connecting infrastructure, the storage and the transportation of uh, the hydrogen. Uh, and in the case of those that use blue, I, I'm sure that some of the, the CCS projects would also be eligible for that funding. So to the extent the government is uh, attracting co-investment from not just state and local governments and universities, but also especially from private sector participants, and you know, there's a multiplier effect. If you can attract $40 billion of private money by spending $7 billion, and if you can use the government monies to spur the collaboration, the connecting infrastructure, and the R and D, uh, then that makes the private investments, you know, significantly more valuable. And doing this on a regional basis means you're collecting in at least in these seven areas, you know, a critical mass. And we can see in other areas, whether that's you know film or Silicon Valley for tech or what have you, this concentration of expertise and collaboration uh, in an intentional way can can really create can
0: create markets and
1: create. You know multiplier
0: effects for for investment and then the next uh, natural question is how does then IRS guidance when formally given how does how will the tax credits um, affect uh, the ecosystem in terms of from on a cost basis
1: so the inflation reduction act contains tax credits uh, production tax credits for uh, hydrogen, that is produced in a way that avoids greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, We are still waiting for guidance from the Treasury Department, from the IRS on some of the key requirements for that. Uh, Additionality, to me, is one of the bigger ones, which is the the question of are you you actually adding on new renewables to provide this power rather than displacing uh, what otherwise would have been renewable energy available for other uses like EV charging and, and, and so forth. Uh, because for the hydrogen to have a you know a decent um, uh, use case and a defensible one from a climate change perspective, uh, it, it it would be moving backwards if you're to produce hydrogen, for example, to provide uh, uh, fuel cells for cars when you could just power those cars by plugging them into an electric grid, assuming that you're using renewable energy in in either case. So the IRS guidance is is not yet out. There is no hint to me in anything coming out of DOE on the regional hub proposals that would suggest um anything one way or the other as far as what that guidance from treasury is going to look like they're independent processes now it will be possible for projects that are being developed within these hubs still to apply for and use tax credits to the extent they're eligible whether that's for uh, green hydrogen production or for ccs or um or for that matter the associated
0: renewable energy developments um just one last question. Last question for me, and then I think Joel has a closing question too. If you were to take a look at just the the, the people awarded, the or the the sub parties and the these hubs that were awarded, if there were any particular big winners that stood out um, here versus others, just curious your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, um, look, I think they're they're all winners because they're all getting significant funding from the government and and also the recognition, and I think the. You know that that does help them in their efforts to collaborate and, and bring on new partners. Um, I think the role of universities in this and academic centers is often overlooked, especially by people involved, you know, like me in the private sector and, and in financing, uh, and and uh, tax credit monetization. Um, but that that is really huge for a lot of them. Uh, the other thing that struck out uh, stuck out to me. Uh, I was quite struck by the job creation numbers. And how different they were i think it's really important to remember that the inflation reduction act and before the the bipartisan infrastructure law which is the source of the seven billion dollars of funding for the regional clean hydrogen hubs that that is fundamentally not just an environmental or a climate plan it's fundamentally industrial policy meant to create jobs and meant to create domestic jobs so just as the inflation reduction act contains you know domestic content requirements or adders for certain tax credits uh here in the in the regional hubs, job creation and community benefits uh were a significant part of the assessment so each of the proposals had to come up with uh they were, would have been scored based on technical merit uh they would have been based on the financial and market viability of their proposals uh how well would the hub function so it's not just a matter of spokes, but is there really a synergistic you know kind of a um, uh, additive element to the fact that they're collaborating um, management and team partners, you know, how, how good are they? But then most importantly, at the end, not most importantly, but a, a, and a significant factor in this were the community benefit plans uh, at least 40% of the benefits, which includes the benefits, the health benefits from reduced emissions uh, would have to flow to uh, disadvantaged communities. Uh, there in all of these proposals, was an element of participation from, uh tribes where that was relevant or from disadvantaged uh, communities, even uh, in the Appalachian proposal, we see elements of you know communities that have been adversely hurt uh, by the national shift away from coal production and toward natural gas and renewables. So all of these things I think went into the mix. If you look at the job creation numbers for these, they vary quite a bit, even though the dollar amounts don't uh, Some of the proposals will create you know, a few thousand, uh, jobs mostly in construction, you know with maybe uh, 3,000 or less in some cases even less than a thousand permanent jobs being created. Uh, the Midwest proposals kind of stood out that way to me in particular. Uh, the proposals in, in Texas and the Northwest create more jobs. California's proposal, stunningly more jobs to be created. They're predicting uh, up to 130,000 new jobs just in construction plus another 90,000 permanent jobs. So ah. that's a, that's a, that's a huge bang for the buck yeah. as far as job creation goes. Uh, and I think some of that reflects the scale, the number of participants and the the, the coordination statewide, really uh, from the governor's office on down to the the ports and, and University of California. And of course, all the private sector participants in that, which is a, a pretty long list. So I think when you look at the negotiations and how DOE doles out this money, the hubs that are creating the most jobs and that are, furthest along the process of having real projects that can now, you know, are shovel ready and can can get going. I think those are the ones where you'll see the most movement quickly.
0: Where do you um, think a lot of the permanent jobs are are coming from in there? I mean, where we're used to seeing only, you know, a few people or a handful do the O&M on like wind and solar projects. So just curious if you had any thoughts on that.
1: I think it reflects the fact that the California proposal really does emphasize the use case. And how do you create a use for the hydrogen? In this case, 100% green hydrogen from renewables. But how do you create a use case where you're also then uh, abating or avoiding other emissions downstream from those who would use hydrogen instead of using something else Mm -hmm. like natural gas or, uh, you know, bunker fuel for ships? Uh, So decarbonizing ports, decarbonizing the airport, decarbonizing uh, long haul transportation, decarbonizing industrial heat. Um, and also perhaps, uh, you know, ammonia production. I mean, those are things which all could have a significant permanent benefit, not beyond just the construction of the the new projects.
0: Uh, Along those lines, uh, this last question for you was how the hubs are thinking of utilizing hydrogen for commercial use um, as far as whether it involves transportation of the product or using uh, storage ultimately. Uh, What are you think uh, what do you think we'll
1: see yeah so i think you know hydrogen today most hydrogen that is produced in the u.s and i I suspect this is largely true globally is used either in, in production of ammonia and fertilizer uh or is used in oil refining and uh similar industrial uses we do not typically use burn hydrogen for other things and uh hydrogen use cases that are you know, proposed, one of them is, of course, to decarbonize fertilizer production. That would be significant as far as reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, another is to use hydrogen as a fuel in modes of transportation like uh, marine vessels, ferries, uh, maybe some long-haul transportation uh, that for freight in particular, where it's difficult to use uh, electricity or electric batteries. Uh, Some of that has to do with the weight of batteries. Some of that has to do with the availability of charging stations. If you're taking a ship across the ocean, there's not a lot of places to plug it in (laughs) on the way. You don't want to take the time to do that because time is money. Um, uh, Fuel cells compared to batteries, even for EVs, uh, have certain advantages as far as taking less time to recharge when you have to add in more hydrogen for the fuel cell, for example. Uh, There are issues around mass, but it's generally a, a very dense energy source, even though it's very light and can take up a lot of space. Um, I I think you'll see other hydrogen use cases uh, that are already being discussed, for example, co-firing hydrogen in natural gas plants. Uh, So if you have a power plant that today burns natural gas and you're in an area where it's needed for grid stability or grid reliability and cannot be easily uh, replaced by intermittent resources like wind or solar, or where Uh, long duration batteries are either not not yet available or too expensive, Uh, at least as a transition, you can preserve the value of that gas plant uh, on the electric grid, but reduce its greenhouse gas emissions, in particular CO2 emissions, by adding in, say, up to a 30% blend of hydrogen. And if that hydrogen is produced from a renewable power source uh, through electrolysis, then that green hydrogen can have a net uh, carbon reducing benefit. Now, there's issues with that because you raise the burn temperature for the gas plant, that increases NOx emissions, and nitrogen oxides are greenhouse gases, so that's you know a concern. There, you know, In these proposals, you could see R&D, for example, dollars being spent on improving nozzle technologies to reduce the associated NOx uh, emissions. Um, one key issue in all of these things, I think, to, to bear in mind is hydrogen production uh, and a lot of hydrogen use is very water-intensive. And some of these proposals are from places where, you know, water scarcity is not currently a major issue, but there are others where water scarcity is certainly top of mind. And long-term, I think it's an issue everywhere when you look at, uh, you know, aquifer uh, inundation or aquifer depletion. So these are, you know, complicated issues. And one of the advantages of the hubs, I think, is to come up with end use cases that are aligned with the available feedstocks and the better, you know, the best in class technology that's to be created in order to stimulate the right types of investment where there's not just economic return but also
0: environmental benefits and job creation great uh and something to watch out for too alan as we still are tracking plenty of um, deals done in the natural gas space and uh, you know what the next generation is going to look like some familiar investors but you know they they're obviously looking for next generation use and you've outlined in this case there good way to end it so, uh, Alan, thanks again for joining the podcast. Thanks for joining Jill. And uh, please tune in next time. Uh, Break out.
1: Okay, Jill, John, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure.